coming up. And my, my feeling has been all along that all the work, all the effort that we put into this, if it saves just one life, how do you put a price on that? For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. And I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Less than a day after she was reported missing, an Indiana wife and mother was recently found dead, and her husband is now jailed, accused of her murder. I can't even imagine uh, the overwhelming grief that the family is going through, uh, also their friends and the community as a whole. And in Pennsylvania, our partner station Fox 43 took a closer look at the technology behind smart guns. I identified that the technology could be could be helpful. And then I thought, well, where's the technology? It's been around for, the idea's been around for 25 years. In Boone County, Indiana, murder charges have been filed against 40-year-old Andrew Wilhoyt in the killing of his wife on March 24th, 2022. First off, Will, tell us a little bit about the victim in this case, Elizabeth Nikki Wilhoyt. Reed, WTHR in Indianapolis actually spoke with Nikki Wilhoyt's former co-worker and a friend of 20 years. Her name is Chris Miller. Chris used to work with Nikki at a dental practice, and she described her as intelligent, caring, bubbly, and a bright light. She said Nikki had just finished her last chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer. And some friends say the couple's relationship had really been in trouble for for years and that Nikki was, in fact, in danger even and was trying to find a way out. But they also said similar things to what Chris Miller said, is that she cared about people, she cared about patients, and that she would do anything to make things better for people. So take us through this. When and where was Nikki Wilhoyt last seen alive? Nikki Wilhoyt was reported missing on March 25th. Police say she was last seen at her home the night before. We start with breaking news this morning out of Boone County. The sheriff's office there is searching for this missing woman. 41-year-old Elizabeth Nikki Wilhoyt is 5'3", with very short brown hair and blue eyes. She was last seen at her home Thursday night, just northeast of Lebanon. The sheriff's office says she could be in danger. If you know where she is, you are asked to call the Boone County Sheriff's Office. And it's only about a day after Nikki's coworkers reported her missing that that her body was found, right? That's right. Nikki's body was recovered from a creek northwest of Lebanon, Indiana. It was early Saturday morning of March 26th. The Boone County Sheriff's Office says this morning investigators found the body of 41-year-old Elizabeth Nikki Wilhoyt in a creek near her home. Indiana State Police are now leading this investigation to avoid conflict of interest since Andrew Wilhoyt is the son of a Boone County Councilwoman. The prosecutor in this case has cited a coroner's report that Nikki died from a blow to the head. And as it turns out, police say that her husband, Andrew Wilhoyt, actually led police to her body. Court documents say Andrew first lied to detectives who were called to investigate when she first went missing after she failed to report for work. Here's WTHR, our NBC affiliate in Indianapolis, with details of the investigation in the days after his arrest. Now, a probable cause affidavit filed Monday revealed Will Hoyt initially lied to detectives when first questioned. Detectives spoke to Andrew and his children the morning after the murder, and detectives said they found traces of blood in the couple's bedroom, which Andrew says came from scratches on Nikki and his bloody nose. 
Now, he originally told investigators he and his wife had a fight inside their home and that he had been having an, an affair. Court records show Andrew later changed his story after speaking with an attorney, saying Thursday night the couple was fighting outside when Nikki charged at him. He then struck her with a flower pot, knocking her out. Andrew told police, quote, he didn't know what to do, so he put Nikki's body in his pickup truck and threw it in a nearby creek. Andrew Wilhoyt, Nikki's husband, was pretty quickly taken into custody. Where is he now? Andrew Wilhoyt had his initial hearing in the case at the Boone County Circuit Court. He faces 45 to 60 years in prison if convicted of this crime. Now, today's court hearing did not take long for Andrew Wilhoyt, who had very few words this morning as a judge entered a not guilty plea on his behalf for the killing of his wife, Nikki, with a jury trial now set for this fall. Now, two of Nikki's friends were at the hearing this morning, and as they left the courthouse, they could be seen with tears coming down their faces. Meanwhile, both the defense attorney as well as the prosecutor declined to comment after they left the hearing this morning. Meanwhile, as far as Andrew, he's due back in court on May 27th for a pre-trial conference, and then again in August on the 29th for a jury trial. Anytime we're talking about a case like this involving allegations of domestic violence, the question is always, how could this situation have been prevented? And of course, what can we do to prevent something like this happening to others in the future? What have folks in the area been been saying about this case following this news? I think there's a sense that Nikki could have been helped and that this was a missed opportunity. Here's Jenny Ronovich at WTHR with more on that. When news broke about Nikki Wilhoyt's death, that her husband was charged with murder, Pascal Fettig and his team of advocates in Boone County took it personally. Heartbreak that they could have helped. My first feeling, we failed. We failed. I had no idea Nikki was on, it was not on my radar at all. Saving domestic violence survivors is part of their mission, so the nonprofit immediately posted on Facebook, encouraging others in dangerous relationships to reach out, and they just secured more funding for an awareness campaign. Making sure that they're empowered, that they do not deserve that kind of life, and their children don't deserve that kind of life. That's, that's the education we need to get out there. There is a way out. There is a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. The first step is a phone call, 911 for an emergency, but 211 to connect to important resources. You know, give you guidance, give you counseling, uh, give you a safety plan. Just letting you know what to do. And if they're not ready to leave, then we, we basically uh, make sure that they know how to be ready. Make sure that, that you have a go bag and a go bag hidden necessities for your children if you have children uh, and important papers and something to, to, uh, to just make it through the night because we can take care of the rest. And for friends and family who see signs of abuse, break the silence, call for help. Knowing that it was happening is one thing. Knowing what to do and how to do it is another. And that's, that's where we come in. Reed, you've been looking into a story about smart guns from our partner station, Fox 43, in York, Pennsylvania. Let's start with this. What are smart guns? So the, the general idea behind creating a, a smart gun is creating a gun that can only be fired by its registered owner. And this is not really a new idea. People have been talking about creating smart guns for decades now. And there have been some questions over the years around reliability, getting the technology right. But but advocates think that smart guns would be able to significantly reduce crime and, and accidental shootings. 
But this recent story from our partner station, Fox 43, is more focused on how the technology actually works. All right, so how exactly does the technology work? Well, they looked at one gun developer in particular called Lodestar Works in Pennsylvania. And like I said, the goal is to make a gun that can only be used by its registered owner. So they've created a smart gun that verifies a user's identity in one of three ways. Biometrics or fingerprint identification, a pin pad on the actual gun, or Bluetooth via a smartphone app. So if you become a registered owner, you would download the company's app, register your fingerprint, and set up a passcode. And then when you want to use the gun, you use one of those methods to unlock it, and then you're able to fire it. So does that mean only one person can then use the firearm? Not exactly. Multiple adults could be registered to use the same weapon. According to the company, each firearm can have up to 10 registered fingerprints. And talking to Fox 43 reporter Rachel Young Kunis, the co-founder of this company, Lodestar Works, Ginger Chandler, said that the biometric or the fingerprint method is is her preferred method. Once I'm once I've registered, I would always use the biometric because it's fast and it was designed to unlock immediately. Rachel Young Kunis also spoke to Chandler's co-founder Gareth Glazer who addressed some potential concerns that have been brought up around gun hacking. What do you say to people who are worried about their gun getting hacked? Nothing's perfect. Nothing's perfect. In the case of our product though, one thing we're looking at is to actually enhance the encryption. Something else that Glazer talked about is the possibility of retrofitting existing guns with this sort of technology. First, the idea of a retrofit scared us because um, it's a firearm. And so to make it to be some kind of a kit, like a DIY situation, is really, I think, um, irresponsible, which means that it probably needs to go to a gunsmith to be done. And so that's very cumbersome. And you know, I think it would be and really not practical to start with. Um, we do intend, of course, to bring our technology into other, other forms of firearms, though, including ARs and probably shotguns. So there's a lot more real estate to work with there and to put the technology in. But as we've gone along, I think one thing we've discovered is that all of our technology resides in the lower part of the firearm. And the same would be true in any firearm. What that means is, if, so long as it's the right generation exactly, you know, we could put our technology, say, in a, uh, a frame set for a um, Smith & Wesson M&P. Probably under some kind of a partnership with them, because that's going to be protected as opposed to the Glock that we're using is not. Um, and then, if you already own that model at home, traditional, all you need to do is take the top part off, take out the you know, the Lodestar Intel inside type uh, frame and reassemble. And now you've got, you've converted it into a smart gun. Um, we're a little concerned about that only because um, what we see in prototyping is that every year the firearms manufacturers make tiny tweaks in their, uh, in their um, product, which means that if, if there's any chance that you're going to put the wrong you know, part A onto part B and they don't exactly match, it's not gonna work right. It could be dangerous, it could just generally not work. So, you know, my, my, my view is, yes, there's 400 million guns out there in civilian hands right now. Do we need to somehow replace all 400 with smart guns? No, to have an impact, no. 
Because of those 400 million guns, they're concentrated in roughly 30% of American homes, which means those homes own on average 12 or 13 guns. Only maybe one is designated as for home defense. So the rest can be locked up. And so we have a much greater impact than you'd think. Because remember, it's, that, it's the gun that's in the kitchen drawer that's misused, not the 10 that are in the, in the, in the, in the vault. And Reed, you mentioned that advocates of this technology think it could actually reduce crime. What would that look like? Well, maybe the most obvious way is that advocates say it could cut back on accidental shootings. Glazer said the company decided to develop this gun after hearing story after story of children getting killed in accidental shootings. And, you know, with with a smart gun, a child who finds a gun that wasn't stored properly wouldn't be able to fire it or at least shouldn't be able to fire it. Fox 43 pulled data from the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit that records gun violence incidents from more than 7,500 law enforcement, media, government, and commercial sources. And what they found is that, at least in Pennsylvania, the number of children ages 12 to 17 killed by guns jumped 45% just from 2020 to 2021. Glazer also said developments in smart gun technology have the potential to not just prevent unintentional shootings, but they could reduce teen suicides and gun thefts. You know, why, why would you want to steal a gun that you can never actually use, being the logic? And a lot of crimes are committed with stolen guns. In fact, the vast majority of gun crimes are not committed by lawful gun owners. I talked to WCNC reporter Nate Morabito a few weeks back on this podcast about stolen guns in North Carolina, and his investigation found reports of stolen guns have increased every year in Charlotte since 2018, and that there really isn't a law that holds gun owners there accountable for improper storage of guns in most circumstances, even in cases that that he'd found where guns ended up in schools. And Rachel Yankunis at Fox 43, while working on this story, talked to Harrisburg Bureau of Police Lieutenant Kyle Gouch about Harrisburg's recent spike in gun violence and the role that stolen guns has apparently played. What do you think is maybe causing that spike in gun violence in Harrisburg? I can say the uh, six, seven years I've been uh, up in the detective division supervising detectives, this is not the first time. And, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is probably not the, the last time in you know, the history of the city of Harrisburg that we'll have this. How are criminals getting their hands on illegal guns? Uh, there's various ways. Some of the firearms that we recover, uh, we determined that they were stolen in a burglary uh, and they're filtered into the city. So getting back to what the goal is of these smart guns, you know, if you can cut down on gun thefts, theoretically, you can make it that much more difficult for would-be criminals to get their hands on a firearm in the first place. So, Reed, when might these be available and what would the cost for something like this be compared to a traditional firearm? Well, the gun that Lodestar is working on is a handgun. They say it'll be priced between $850 and $900, which they kind of market as the price of a traditional gun plus the price of a biometric gun safe. And as you suggested, these smart guns are not available yet. Rachel Yankunis reported that they could be on shelves as early as the beginning of next year. And looking into this, I found a recent poll from Morning Consult that showed a majority of gun owners support efforts to develop smart guns. 56% of gun owners and about half, 49% of all adults support the efforts with just 27% saying they don't know or didn't have an opinion and 24% saying they oppose the efforts. So 
Clearly, there will be interest in smart guns when they do become available. The idea of smart guns is not new. It has been around. So it makes you strongly believe that this is the technology and the prototype that we have been missing. The technology improvement and the attitude and experience like the Ginger has, and my, my feeling has been all along that all the work, all the effort that we put into this, if it saves just one life, how do you put a price on that? All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us that story. Really interesting stuff. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We are here, of course, every weekday, Monday through Friday, five days a week. And if you haven't already, check out our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. One more programming note, we have a new show that is now available. It's called Locked Inside. It's a co-production with KPNX in Phoenix, Arizona. Listen and follow today wherever you listen to podcasts, Locked Inside. For The Daily Crime, along with Reed Redmond, I'm Will Johnson.